Hi, my name is G.V. Freeman, and welcome to Psychedelic IQ, a podcast devoted to offering grounded and practical wisdom for psychedelic practitioners. At Psychedelic IQ, we try and weave our way between the secular and the sacred, and we've set our primary intentions on improving positive outcomes, increasing safety, and building healthy community within the psychedelic landscape. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a positive review, and always remember, the path is wiser than the traveler. Talk about a fun episode for me to record, because today I get to introduce you to cats, and I've known cats for some time now, and one of the most amazing things about this human being is that she has been operating, she is a true OG in the world of psychedelics, she has been operating in this world since the late 60s, and it's truly, truly special for me to spend time with her and to just hear the experience and the wisdom that she has to offer. You know, I won't mention any names to protect the innocent, but I could just tell you that Katz has not only sat with and guided some of the people that are without a doubt operating on the front lines of the psychedelic revolution today. We get to talk about things like safety and music, and we go into some stuff about bad trips and, and what to do when problems arrive. And I think that there's some really, really great information here from truly an elder uh, in our community. So true legacy on the psychedelic landscape. Katz is both a psychotherapist, a shamanic practitioner, and a guide fascinated with questions of consciousness and the nature of reality. Katz has studied these areas in many different ways over the past 35 years, including meditation, hypnosis, shamanic practices, Reiki, as well as psychophysiology and clinical psych. Katz started her journey with a single tab of LSD in Berkeley, California in 1965. Then fast forwarding to 2005 and attending a talk by Rick Doblin, she met more serious students who are interested in psychedelic exploration, spirituality, and expanded states of consciousness. With nearly 60 years of experience using multiple psychedelic substances as both a facilitator and a practitioner, as well as decades of experience as a practicing psychotherapist, it's truly an honor to chat with someone with so much compassion, care, and expertise. So without further ado, I welcome Katz to the program. All right. Well, Katz, welcome uh, to the Psychedelic IQ podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. First of all, you have one of the, out of all the people that I have met on the psychedelic landscape, you have one of the more interesting uh, bios, the more interesting range of experiences. And I would love to just hear you tell a little bit about your story uh, to kind of level set, to tell people where you've been and like what you've done. Well, I hope the audience can laugh at this, but I'm now considered a legacy of the psychedelic train, having been on this train since probably 1965. Wow. My first introduction with a tab of LSD that I acquired at Berkeley. Having driven with friends in the quintessential Volkswagen bus all the way to Berkeley. <laughs> I mean, we knew LSD was a phenomenon. That's why I, I was eager to see, well, what is this stuff? 
But we had no guides. Uh, we had no elders. We didn't even have any chemistry other than the fact that it was obviously safe. No one was dying from taking LSD. I brought the little tab back, treasured it, trying to find the right moment. The right moment never came. And I said, what the hell? I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I was alone without music, which is not recommended for people. Now we know. I didn't know. Complete innocent. And it was the weirdest trip I ever had because I couldn't move. If I moved, the slightest willful movement caused an extreme headache. Wow. Even even um, deep breathing caused a headache. Even, and I did not know that remembering is a volitional act. If I tried to remember my journey, I would get the headache. So here I am, first trip, laying stone still on the floor, barely breathing, and I begin to travel the universe. What I do remember is the space pod, because every time I try to remember, it would shoot me back to ground zero. I can clearly remember the space pod. I can clearly remember the people or whoever they were up there. And then I get shot off again. And that was my first LSD experience. The first thought that I had is, wow, that was some really good LSD. (laughs) They don't don't make that kind of LSD anymore. That's right. It was, uh, you know, it was not even, it was blotter. Blotter acid. So... So I I don't know how you feel about the term legacy, but because you've been in this world for so long, yeah. since 1965, what do you think the biggest difference is between the experiences that you had in the late 60s, the 70s, and maybe people were just learning about all of this stuff and right. they were just really trying and maybe the guides were just like coming about and today, like what do you see as the biggest differences? Well... First, we had no guides. There wasn't any such thing as a guide. There might have been someone who had a few more trips under their belt, but they weren't guides. So most of it, we were stumbling in the dark. Most people were using it uh, recreationally, meaning without any kind of purpose or intent other than seeing what would happen. What would happen if they did this or if they did that or with music or whatever? So a lot of experimentation. A lot of experimentation. But it was all done, at least in my experience, it was all done kindly and, and with heart. You know, no one, no one was, uh, I don't know, I hate, to, I hate to do this, but I'm going to say it. It wasn't like people chugging a, a pitcher of beer. Because, you know, they get really wonky and they're often not friendly. That was never the case. Would you say, so I love that frame, kindly and with heart. Do you think that that is the same or different than the way that psychedelics are showing up in the world today? I think the seed of kindly and with heart was planted a long time ago. And right now in the psychedelic renaissance, we're seeing the flowering of it. Ah. Because when you're working with a guide, when you seek out a retreat or something, the people are there really from their own hearts to show other people 
a miraculous experiment to keep them safe, to provide support. And this allows people to go farther and deeper than people were going in the 60s and 70s. So would you say that is the maybe one of the biggest responsibilities of a good guide is to offer a safe space to allow people to go deeper. Absolutely. Safety is number one. Absolutely number one. The people that are there, if there are other, if it's not a one-on-one, the people that are there as facilitator and as other pers- uh, participants have been vetted, and you know that these people are stable. The best of your knowledge, they are stable, and they all have positive intent for being there. Mm. How, as as a guide, how do you screen for positive intent? Well, it's always important before people ever come in for ceremony that the person who's going to be the guide sits down and has the conversation with them, kind of feels them out. Because it's not all content. Some of it is, for lack of a better word, the vibe of the person. And why are they, why are they there? What do they want to get out of it? Uh, what are their fears? What are they afraid might happen? Um, you know, one of the things a guide has to always say is, you don't know what's going to come up, but I'm here to make sure that you'll be okay, that no one's going to disturb you, that your journey won't be interfered with, and if you need some kind of help and support, I am here to do it. And you have you participated, I don't know when the year was, in the Guild of Guides. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there were a lot of us doing work, you know, um, with psilocybin, with mostly with psilocybin, mostly with MDNA. Um, and, and I say that as a guide in a, in, in a more therapeutic sense. I mean, people were using other things, but they were using other things to just explore the experience that wasn't personal. So... Anyway, the ones of us doing therapeutic work, because everything was secret, we didn't know who was who or who was doing what or what, you know, but we wanted to talk to other people to find out what were they doing, what was the dose, what problems did they run into, what could they mix together and and be okay, what medicines needed to be checked out, because some medicines would be okay and others would be absolutely verboten. So we wanted to be able to get together as a community and and talk about that and talk about the ethics of um, the situation, talk about how to protect ourselves from, you know, legal scrutiny, because we were all at that time, because that was, oh, that had to be around 2012, 2014, somewhere in there. So everything was really, really still, you know, undercover. So all of those topics were what would be discussed. We did not, in the Guild of Guides, come together to um, take medicine of any kind, because we already knew the medicine. We wanted to know the practice, the best practice with the medicine. And that's why we got together. So you are today practicing psychotherapist. Yeah. You work with clients. Yes. um, In a very traditional practice. And also this is something that you do in the right context, in the right location. Yes. How do you think that these two things have grown or intersected for you? Like you've been in your therapeutic practice for a long time. You've got a lot of psychedelic experience. How has, have things changed? What have you learned over the years? Well, 
The most important thing I've learned, and, and this may not be as deep as you might wish it to be, but in my experiences with MDNA and the heart opening and the empathic quality of MDNA, it taught me where that place of love was in my heart, in my body, in my physiology, so that I didn't need the medicine to feel that. And it gave me the capacity to sit with a client, regular client, regular psychotherapy, and open my heart in such a way that they could feel that and it established trust and safety and a willingness to go deep for them. And I learned that, honestly, from MDNA, from that experience of loving people, loving the world, seeing the beauty in what is right in front of your face. I appreciate that you said it might not be as deep, but I I think that what you just said may may be incredibly deep and it may be incredibly important because what I think, and I just want to see if I heard you right, that you having done your own work with MDMA enabled you to feel love not only for yourself, but also like deep empathy and compassion and love for the people you were sitting with. Yes. And that love then opens up this deeper space of safety and trust. Right. And that's also something that I could, again, bring into if I was working with a person with medicine, I, I, I could now, with my own intention, create that field. Yeah. So I think what I, like, what I just heard from that is those people who are wanting to sit with others in the medicine, one of the biggest qualities that they should really develop is not only love for themselves and love for others and compassion and the ability to create that very sacred, safe space. Right. But that means they have to do their own work first. Yes, they have to. I don't think, I don't think the average person, and I could be wrong, has any idea of the amount of love they could experience with MDNA. Agape love. I mean, it's just something that the average person walking around doesn't ever feel. They might they might feel it in church when they're singing a hymn, maybe, but it ends when they, they don't learn how to carry it out with them. And MDNA as a teacher, it allows you to learn where that is within your own being and access it without the medicine. So then what would you say to all of these people who are going through various psychedelic training programs and getting a lot of book knowledge and a lot of how-tos and a lot of case reports and but they're not sitting with the medicine there some of them may not even be seeing psychotherapists or may not even be doing really their own work they're getting a lot of information what would you say to those people they don't know what they're doing (laughs) you know that easy huh I mean, I know they're trying their best, but we've all had a hard time sharing our psychedelic experiences. I mean, sharing what happens when you take, say, 5-MeO, for instance, and uh, you go into white light and your ego dissolves and it's an amazing experience. But if you have never experienced that, my words sound hollow. If you've experienced it, you know how absolutely amazing it is. And in terms of expanded consciousness, you know there's much more to you and to the universe than you see in the default world. So what would you tell all of those people who are coming out of training program having not had an experience yet? I would tell them they have to find someone to work with and and learn because each medicine has its own um 
trajectory in its own framework. A psilocybin experience will be very different than an LSD experience or an MD an MDNA experience or, and for God's sake, a DMT experience, you know. <laughs> and, and who can explain that unless you've experienced it? It's like telling a person about a, a terrific roller coaster and how you went <laughs> up and up and up and up and then, whee! I mean, they can kind of get it, but they have no idea the rush that you feel when you start that <laughs> downhill track. So they have that. I mean, I really am. I'm. I'm very strong about that. They need to have their own experience with whatever medicines they're going to be using. They need two or three at least experiences with each one of those medicines to understand what it is like within the being. You know. You mentioned uh, trajectory. Every medicine has its own trajectory and framework. Uh, yes. Say more about that. Well, we can refer to music because that's an easy one, I think, for people to relate to. For instance, with ayahuasca, when there's an ayahuasca ceremony, the music is often has a kind of a wilting fast pace to it. No matter what the content of, of the caro is, you know, it's a da 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 It's kind of fast. It's not like low meditative music, you know. With MDNA, the music is different. You know, the mellow, soft music can feel very luscious and embracing. The music that you dance to can feel like phenomenal, but it's not like an Ikaro at all. And the same thing with mushrooms. If you listen to any of Maria Sabrina's old tapes and her singing, her singing on for the mushrooms for the little people has a similar lilting quality to it that ayahuasca has. That they're cousins in a way, mm-hmm. uh, and it has that lilting quality, you know. With 5-MeO, when people smoke 5-MeO, it's best to have absolute complete silence because music detracts from that going in and having that expansive white light situation. And Stan Groff, who developed the holotrophic breathwork after he had worked with LSD and was trying to find a way to help people have that kind of an experience without LSD because it was very illegal then, still is, I guess. Um, when you're doing the training with him, they have a whole week's training on the music and how to build the music, how to build the emotional themes, um, how to how to help people without helping them, how to look at your own um, needs as a facilitator, for instance. You're talking about being a facilitator, warned against not going over and soothing a person if they're sobbing not doing that unless they specifically ask you, but rather to help them not contain an experience, but move through the experience so that the experience is resolved, so that where that came from has melted away. So music is a is a really big piece of all that. Not having, uh, in terms of set and setting, you know, the, the, the setting being where you are, where you are, you know, it needs to be contained, people not coming and going, not loud, other noises around. You want it's, mm, it's I'm gonna say, like a womb like place, mm. soft, yeah. protected, you know, um, low light, pleasant sense. All of that applies to safety, but it also enhances the experience. Yeah, yeah. How do you think? Some of this relates or maybe differs between, we sort of weave between the secular and the sacred. So if we look at um, the, maybe a more clinical psychotherapeutic 
environment yeah. versus something maybe more sacred. What are your thoughts on that? All right, I need you to find what you mean by the psychotherapeutic environment. Uh, I, I, I need more <laughs> definition for that. Maybe more something more clinical. So if you, you go into a doctor's office... Yeah, uh, or a, even a, if we're thinking ketamine, for instance, or or just doing a research study, you go into a hospital of some kind, and it's a much more sterile environment compared to maybe more uh, sacred containers. Maybe whether that's in the jungle or whether that's just you know in a in a very safe space in somebody's home. Do you think that in your experience that changes and can change the the tone and tenor of the journey? Oh, of course. I mean, there's no question. <laughs> I mean, you know, you couldn't dance beside your bed in a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. No, and and I I think the early studies, really early, going back to the 60s, you read about their protocols. They they tried that, and they were just being clinical. They but they were working with people with serious mental disorders too, you know. So it it was a clinical setting. But you know, if you look at the current MDNA protocol, the one right now, they specify an environment, a home-like environment. You know, you're not coming into a regular doctor's office and the desk and everything. And no, you have a sofa, you have soft light, you know, you have a, a warm ambiance there. You have people, again, taking care of you. If you need to go out for, go to the bathroom or something, there's someone there. You don't have that in, in a hospital. And with the current ketamine, I honestly have my doubts about it, but other people are saying it really is great. I haven't ever tried ketamine that way, so I, I really can't comment. I had one one client in the early phases, like about three years ago or so, in a hospital, and they put him on a 96-hour drip of ketamine, low-dose ketamine, and left him alone to sit in the bed. What an awful mm. experience. Yeah. It didn't help him one little bit. And he told me the nicest part of it was when a nurse came by and, you know, just randomly sat down and said, how are you doing? Would you like more water? You know, something. That was the kindest act he got. Yeah. So, um I'm, 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 I'm just have to say the votes out for me with that one. <laughs> I want to actually, I want to go back. You said something earlier about in the breath work. I think you had quantified it in the, in the breath work, but I think it's also important uh, for psychedelics as well of a facilitator, a guide, not getting involved in somebody's process. So you right. in breath work they were, you know, they were having some difficult experience and being trained yes. not to engage. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about that. How like as a somebody who has been doing this for a very long time, how do you know when it's time to get involved? How do you know when it's time to lean back and say have yeah. your own process? And and well, maybe then the maybe the third part of that would be how do you know what what your shit is bringing up and like what you're bringing into the engagement. Okay. Well, the first thing I'm going to flip back to what we were talking about earlier about people being in training programs and having never taken the medicine. Okay. I'm going to flip back to that. Yeah. 
because any psychonaut that you might meet in general has had some pretty mind-blowing and sometimes terrifying experiences on a psychedelic. And if there's one thing that it teaches you, whether you wanted to learn that lesson or not, is courage. Mm. To be able to be in the midst of something that is just absolutely blowing your mind, scaring you half to death. You don't know if it's going to end or not. You don't know if you're going to live or die. And you go through it. And when you come out the other side, you're in one piece. Uh, You've learned something. If nothing else, you've learned that you can do it without freaking out. And that lesson serves you very well when you're working with other clients, when you're a facilitator, because you're not going to get freaked out. I mean, they're screaming or whatever, whatever. And you know that this is part of their process. You know they're going to come out of it. You know they're going to be all right. So you don't run in and try to interfere. If you interfere and help them, they never learn how to get through it on their own. Taking part of their healing process away from them in some ways. You are. You are. Just like with someone with addictions, when you're super, super kind to them, and then at some point you realize you're just enabling them. You don't want to enable a person on medicine. You want to facilitate their recovery for whatever they're recovering from. You know, let me let me give you, you let me I'll give you an example though. Let me give you an, an example. <sighs> This was a uh, ayahuasca. This was in, uh, I think we were in, in Peru. Yeah. And this man was a addiction specialist. One of the, one of the participants was an addiction specialist. And he went in to the ceremony, set and setting his set, which means his intention was to understand heroin because he treated a lot of heroin addicts. They couldn't get away from it. Da 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 da. He wanted to understand. So ayahuasca, the good teacher came in and the spirit of heroin, loving, soft, warm, Arm, approached him, getting closer and closer. You know, he was relaxing into it, and then it turned into a succubus, a little demonic thing that attached to his chest ah, and began sucking his life. He was friggin' terrified. I mean, even the next day, he was terrified. I mean, because I sat and held him for a while. You know, the next day, he was still shattered. But he learned, he understood. And if we'd come along and said, oh, man, you know, calm down. It's okay. It's okay. It, it, he wouldn't have gotten the lesson. He wouldn't have learned. He wouldn't have understood at such a deep level. Yeah. So. That it reminds me of something that you said, learning by becoming. Learning by becoming. That is, to me, that is one of the one of the most beautiful and powerful things about psychedelics is you learn by becoming the in in the lesson you are it you're experiencing it with every fiber of your being you're not thinking it you're not just feeling it it's um, going back to a term in the in the 60s and you grok it hmm. <laughs> so when a facilitator experiences an individual that's having a very difficult experience yes. and interferes yes I'll, I'll use the the word interferes for right now, we're really get we're taking away their opportunity to learn by becoming. Yes. And and a lot of times that's because if you talk about the facilitator dealing with their own shit. Yeah. Okay. They have to understand that it's their need to do something. It's it's not in in service of their client. They feel a need to do something. If I don't do something I'm a bad person, you know, or whatever. So the rule of thumb is you don't help anyone unless they really ask for it. And if they ask for it, 
you're there to support them. But you, I'm reminded. I'm reminded. Uh, I think I heard Kylea Taylor offer a question that says, "Who is this for?" Like if I am taking an action, that's right. If I'm going to go intervene. Yes. Who is this for? Is it really for the client? Is it for the journeyer? Or is it for me because I'm so uncomfortable yes. with them being That's uh, it. in pain? That's it. Learning to not be uncomfortable in the midst of somebody else's catharsis. To be steady, wow. to yeah. be confident, to, to without, without a word, communicating that you're going to be okay. Keep going. Yeah. I wonder if you, you know, in your, pra- in your not only your psychotherapeutic practice, but also you know, your experience in the psychedelic world, do you find guides, facilitators come into this work in part because of their desire to heal and fix others? And maybe I'll go so far as to say, and attach the word codependence uh, yes. into this conversation. Yes. And I, I think so. I mean, one one of the things that happens to people fairly regularly when they first experience a mind-blowing psychedelic experience, however, is they want to go out and save the world. And they um, there's a thing of being the chosen one, the therapist being the chosen one to deliver this amazing magical healing kind of stuff. And that's a dangerous one. I think in meditation they call that uh, a golden trap mm. of, of golden of, handcuffs. You know, yeah, feeling like you're the chosen one, feeling like you've got to do this, you know, um, and that comes up fairly often. And again, a facilitator, I believe a good facilitator, learns to put their ego aside. You know, ego stay over there. In, in in shamanic practice, which which I've had some training into, uh, and I really try to teach that. I'd even try to teach it to guides. You become the hollow bone. You become the conduit for um, wise, loving energy beyond your ability in your head to think about. You allow that and you hold space for that. And the mind will come over here and make a comment sometime, but you say, okay, buddy, go sit over there right now. <laughs> I'm working. <laughs> So if you're talking to a guide right now who maybe just or maybe somebody who wants to be a guide listening to the podcast and they've just had a really powerful experience or maybe a couple of nights they just got back from Peru and they say, ah, oh, the, the medicine told me to sell my house and to, you know, move to Costa Rica and to, you know, I'm I'm the one to save the world. What do you say to that person right now? <laughs> I was just talking to somebody. <clears throat> maybe, maybe it was you. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, for 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 at least three months, you don't make major decisions to change your life, you know, to move or whatever. And I personally know one man who we were in the same circle together on ayahuasca. Ayahuasca told him to move. He moved to Brazil. He's still living down there very happily and everything. But it was a strong message. I visited a, a young woman in Costa Rica recently who has an eco equine therapy form. And she also got this message on ayahuasca. She had been a cellular biologist for 20 years. He takes ayahuasca and ayahuasca says, this is your calling. She followed it. I mean, apparently it's okay. Moving a horse down to Costa Rica is no easy matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, she did it and and she's creating a life down there. And, and maybe it's okay for those people, but I wouldn't recommend. I would follow the advice of you wait three months before you make a decision. You know, before you get a divorce, before you sell your house. You know, before you decide to live on a houseboat or what, 
whatever you wait and, and let it settle Any, in and integrate with yourself as a person. Anytime somebody says, ah, the medicine told me that I'm supposed to do X, Y, Z, my response also like wait 90 days and see what the medicine tells you the next time. Like That's right. drink a little more before you decide to completely disrupt your entire life. Right, right. Um, I'm wondering if you would be willing to share a little bit about some of the safety issues that you have experienced along the way. I think that there are things that get oftentimes swept under the rug. Um, yeah. When when bad things happen, especially when we're doing them, you know, the past you know twenty years or so, when psychedelics have been really really taboo, still now. Some of it's coming out a little bit more, but talk to me about maybe breaches in safety that you have experienced over the well, years there, and how that's you know, changed. Actually, there's been several. Never, curiously, never when they were doing things recreationally. I didn't. I. I didn't. Maybe it's because when they were doing things recreationally. <sighs> I, I don't know. It, it, it just never came up. But um, in that one experience when in the same circle with the guy who met heroin, apparently the ayahuasca Carol had allowed a young man in the village to sit in our circle. And I would venture to say he didn't have the same orientation to the medicine that we had, maybe less so. And he got so out of control that they literally picked him up and carried him out of the circle to somewhere else where someone one set with him. So that that was uh, one example. Another another time, um, and again, this was in ayahuasca. It, it doesn't always have to be ayahuasca, but that's just the way it was. The man was a, a psychiatrist himself, actually, but he did not reveal that he also was bipolar. Mm. And uh, I'm not sure whether he was on medicine at the time or maybe he had deceived the medicine temporarily for the retreat. I'm not sure. But he went off the beam. You know, after after the first week, we had, I think, four or five ayahuasca journeys during that time. After the very first one, he started going off the beam, meaning he was uh, self-aggrandizing. He was uh, chest-butting all the men, you know, challenging the men, even, even a 72-year-old retired school teacher. He broke up with his girlfriend. It was a train wreck. And when he got back, as, as far as I knew, he didn't return to his practice. Um, and then a month or two later, he showed up at the, not the facilitator's house, but the, the person who, you know, designed the trip, organized the trip, and yelling and screaming. So... That was a, for instance, of someone just losing it because it's not recommended that people with bipolar or schizophrenia take medicine. At least well, now, we maybe we'll learn how to handle them. But right, right now, we do not know. There was a case. What there was. I want to tell you one terrible case. A really terrible case, and and this has been more than twenty years ago, so I feel okay, you know, telling you about it. It was when it, um, MDNA was first kind of coming in, not a rave scene, but maybe something else. This woman uh, from Nevada was doing MDNA and psilocybin, which a lot of people are doing now, but she did it very inappropriately. She was not a trained therapist. 
she she gave out all kind of misinformation about where MDNA came from, how it was made. I mean, it was just it was just awful. Um, I remember sitting in this circle, being very angry at what I was hearing and knowing that no one would listen to me if I told them how wrong he was. Well, what happened in that evening? And I I never know. I never knew exactly the medical reasons. Some girl went into medical crisis. And this facilitator, untrained, Fruit Loops, as far as I was concerned, did not call an ambulance, did not call for a doctor, called in people in the circle who did Reiki. And the girl died. Mm. The girl died that evening. I'm not quite sure why. Probably a cardiac problem. There was rumor that maybe she was bulimic. You know, already had a pre-existing something or other. But that was one of the worst experiences of my life to see that and feel very helpless about intervening. You know, it wasn't anything I, I could do under this circumstance. Other than very softly pick up my car keys in the middle of the night and drive this speed limit. It was tragic. So as facilitators, most of the safety issues that we hear about are completely unexpected. So there's, you know, this guy in the ayahuasca experience, this person with MDMA. Yes. Not something that you plan for. Well, wait a minute. In a way, it's not something you can plan for. In a way, it is because you 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 have people tell you and swear that they're telling you the truth of what medications they were on what medications maybe they should DC for the journey, if they have any pre-existing mental health problems, any family history of mental health problems that maybe are not manifest in the client at that moment. So you do try to prepare, but you're right. I mean, I'll give you an example of an ethical way, since I told you the terrible ethical way. And this, this is a man, a very prominent person who'd been leading journeys, writing books. He was friends with Leary and Ram Dass and all those people. Uh, in one of his circles, a woman did not reveal uh, some of the medication she was on. She she just didn't tell people. And during the course of the, the work, she started having mental problems, physical problems, breathing problems, all kinds of stuff. This man knew how to handle it professionally as a facilitator. He had everybody quiet down, go to the rooms. He called the ambulance. He went with her, had her put, you know, in the hospital because hospitals don't care what you've taken. They just want to help you mm. stay alive. And so he got her support, called her family, and things went on. That was a responsible way to handle it. As opposed to this other woman who was totally irresponsible and, as far as I'm concerned, caused the death of a young woman. It sounds like there are so many ways that we can approach every one of these situations. Yes. And keeping our wits about us and being always looking out for the safety of the participant uh, yep. is what I take away from all three of those stories. It's true. And that's what holding space and creating safety means. And mm. a person has to be very steady within themselves and, and, and know that they cannot be run by fear. You know, if yeah. something scary comes up, they're not going to freak. They are going to handle it responsibly. They have to know that to be a good facility. There's a lot of stability required if you choose to take on this role in a professional or even maybe a semi-professional way. Right. 
There's a lot of stability required for you to be able to do this job effectively. Yes, because people are going to have scary experiences sometimes. And some people, like like uh, we were talking the other night, can drink three cups and feel nothing. They still need support <laughs> because they're feeling really disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so as we uh, as we sort of wrap up here, I've got three sort of speed round questions for you. First one, why do you do this work? I do this work and have done it for years because it goes much deeper than our ordinary reality. It opens us up to more respect for the universe, for ourselves. Uh, it's very interesting and intriguing, and it has a capacity for really deep healing for people. What is the most important thing you've learned from your teachers? Definitely kindness, but there's something I can't describe very well. You learn how to energetically connect with a person beyond words. Mm. I, I can't explain that very well, but there's a communication that is, uh, it sounds airy-fairy, but seems transdimensional. Energetic. Yes, it's hard to give words. You give words and you're going to cross somebody else's line. But yes, it's like that. It's a very, very exquisitely beautiful, loving state of being. Last question I would ask is, what is the best advice you could give to, if you were speaking to a room full of a thousand facilitators, right. um, all different experience levels. What is the best advice you would give them? Uh, my best advice is for those who don't have a lot of experience to find a mentor among among those. It doesn't have to be, quote, therapeutic, but it can be what, what we would call a bioassay, learning the territory, learning what the medicine is like, the music that goes with it, the visuals, da, da, da. Find a mentor and work with a mentor. And for those who are already experienced, actually, the more experienced a person is, the less they need to use psychedelics because they've learned a lot. And for them, it's just more learning, more exploring, more with gaining more wisdom. I did want to say one thing that I left out, though, before we close. Yeah. Everyone who's a serious traveler or a facilitator always has some form of meditation practice outside of the medicine. It can be, you know, there are many different ways to go about that, but a practice that allows them to go into stillness and to, and to just allow thoughts to come and go and to be with that deep inner part of themselves. Every serious psychonaut has some kind of meditation practice because it grounds, it grounds, it grounds experience, but it allows experience to grow in wisdom. That's beautiful advice. I am curious. You, you talked about finding a mentor, which I was one of the most challenging things for me as I was kind of growing up in the medicine world was to find good mentors. How would you suggest people find a mentor? Listen, the way I found a mentor and mentors is going to conferences, uh, going to book signings where somebody had written a book that was germane. Um, I mean, I... On my own, on my own. I mean, I didn't go with other people. I found, like, my first venture, which is kind of funny, was the Telluride Wild Mushroom Conference. Once I discovered maps, okay, and I got the maps bulletin, that was the first thing I saw was Telluride Wild Mushroom. I said, I'm going. And then I learned about um, Polinke, which was a, a big gathering of psychonauts in the in the. I guess it had been going on for a fair amount of time before I got there, but around the beginning of the 2000s. And I went there, and I went to all the Mind States conferences and the Entheogen conferences. I went to the first international conference on 
ayahuasca in Amsterdam. I just picked up my suitcase and said, I'm going. And then you network because it has to involve trust. And how are you going to trust somebody unless you've met them and talked to them? That's how I found my mentors. Beautiful advice. That's what I would tell other people to do too. Any other last words before we wrap things up today? No, I've really enjoyed this. I guess one of my last words, I'm a little cautious about the psychedelic renaissance. I feel like like they're overselling the mental health benefits of it. I really do because I've known people for 20, 30 years. Psychedelics maybe help, but in many cases, you know, it didn't help at all. So I've, what I worry about with the overselling is just the same thing that happened with Leary, you know. Woohoo, this is amazing. Da-da, everybody should do it. Da-da-da. And there was a backlash because you know, people did silly things. Well, what happens in the psychedelic renaissance with all this hype and people have this expectation and their training and all this kind of stuff, and then it doesn't really meet expectations. I don't want there to be a backlash that says, well, this stuff was never really good in the first place and shut it down again. I don't want to shut it down. I want it to be explored and understood. That's my last word. And I I, uh, I feel you there. I think that there, the media and the researchers are doing everything they can to drum up positive outcomes yes. and acquire more research dollars to do more studies. And I mm-hmm. think that all of the research is fantastic I, and I appreciate that. Uh, and I also talk to so many people who think that they can kind of come in and have a one and done experience and all their trauma and all of yes, 30, 40 right. years of, of history is going to go away. And it's pretty unlikely that that's going to happen. That's right. And that's my that's my concern, too. And the fact and well, the fact that we haven't reached a point yet where we can explore negative results. You know, no one feels comfortable doing that right now. And yet I know it happens. You know it happens. But we yeah. can't investigate it to change or improve it right now under the current conditions. So, yeah. Cats, thanks so much for joining us on the Psychedelic IQ podcast. Uh, I really appreciate um, you and your mentorship and your friendship and uh, look forward to having you on again. Thanks for tuning into the Psychedelic IQ podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would really mean a lot if you could leave us a positive review. If you're a practitioner working with psychedelics, please subscribe to the podcast or join the free community at psychedeliciq.com. And if you're looking for deeper connections, knowledge sharing, and even peer support, please consider joining a mastermind at psychedelicmasterminds.com. Thanks, have a great day, and remember, you're perfect and you're right on time.